0: Uh, this evening let's bow our heads together we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the word and then i will open in prayer let's pray Father, we are so very grateful for all that you've provided for us, all that you have given us with the Lord Jesus Christ and in our salvation. For you have given us everything we need for the spiritual life. You have supplied what we need for our for the logistics of living out the Christian life, and that we may fulfill the ministry that you have given to us. Father, we pray that we might not grow uh, too comfortable in our Christian life; that we not grow lax; that we not forget the importance that we are living in the devil's world and we need to continue to press on, continue to pursue spiritual growth and spiritual maturity that you may be glorified. Father, we pray that as we continue our study now in Romans 8, that you will help us to uh, put together these ideas as Paul wraps up this section dealing with the, the spiritual life before we move on to the next topic. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The last couple of weeks we 've been looking at very important passage dealing with uh, god 's provision for for the believer in times of suffering and I think it 's important I feel like I 'm keep going over this and over this, but I have found in my reading at least that very few commentators, very few scholars really hone in on the contextual unity that we have here. In the last part of Romans chapter 8, and it flows out of 817, just to remind you that it is at that verse that Paul introduces the topic of suffering and adversity in the believer's life, and that this suffering or adversity is not random, but that there is a purpose to it. And that purpose is to train us, it's to discipline us, it's to, not in a negative sense, but to teach us discipline, to remove distractions, to prune things from our life that distract us from pursuing spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And the purpose for the suffering ultimately is to help us in our spiritual growth to conform our character to the image of Christ, which is brought into the picture in Romans 8, uh, uh, 29. So that's the focal point, is the destiny that we have to be mature believers, to be Christ-like in our character. Uh, Suffering is emphasized in verse 18, and that's where we start this discussion where Paul begins to show uh, talk about suffering and that goes all the way down to Romans 8:28 where as I've pointed out when we read and we know that all things work together for good that the all things there relate to the suffering the adversity the difficulty the challenges that we all face in life and in Uh, Focusing our attention on that, he emphasizes that all creation is under the judgment of sin, and he uses the uh, anthropomorphism of groaning, that the creation, which is uh, non-physical, which is uh, just a material universe and doesn't have feelings and doesn't have emotion or doesn't have the ability to articulate, is personified and is said to be groaning because it is under the bondage of corruption uh, expressed in verses uh, 21 and 22. But that this ultimately is going to end when the sons of God, and in the context, the term sons of God, adult sons, is different from the term uh, children of God as it is used in verse 16. Children of God refers to Every every believer as a child of God, but only some believers achieve sonship in the sense of being adult, mature believers, and this is expressed in the term "sons of God" in verse at the end of verse 19. So that's our focal point as believers. What we're called to is to focus on the goal: is that we are to grow up to to be mature. Uh, mature believers. And so in verses 28 and 29, uh, Paul is first reminding us that, that as Christians, everybody, whether Christian or not, everybody suffers. Everybody goes through adversity because we live in a fallen world, a world of corruption. But specifically as Christians, we're living in the devil's world. It's not only a world of corruption, but it's a world under the authority of Satan as the prince and the power of the air. And as such, we go through additional suffering. Now, not everybody wants to think of it as suffering. Some people, uh, think that what, what they're going through isn't really suffering. They want to think of suffering only in terms of if suffering is described or things uncomfortable or put out on a scale of one to ten, they want to limit suffering to the most extreme forms of nine and ten. But suffering covers the whole realm of, uh, opposition that we face, difficulty that we face in life, whether it's uh, at a level 1 or at a level 10. Uh, every time something doesn't go quite the way we want to, and usually those are the things that are quite mi- minor, and we get irritated and we get angry and we get grumpy and we get frustrated, we've just failed the test. and you know, most of us fail tests because we're dealing with adversity at the level point oh oh one level, not the level 10 stuff. It's that really minor stuff that irritates and aggravates us and tends to get us out of fellowship very quickly. So we have to learn to just relax as we go through life and to trust God and not let either the minor things or the major things uh, knock us off course. Now, it's in that context that the Apostle Paul comforting suffering believers is stressing the fact that God has this unbroken chain of events in terms of his oversight of our spiritual life and our salvation that gives us comfort and security in the midst of an ever-changing chaotic world. And so we have security not just security in the sense of the doctrine, eternal security, we have that, but we have security in the sense that God will save us eternally and eventually in terms of phase three, but he will protect us even when things are going completely wrong, living in the devil's world and living in a corrupt environment. So Romans 8, uh, 28 and 29 tell us that God in His sovereignty, overseeing all of the events that take place in, in history, God in His sovereignty works all of these things together for good so that when we get to the end game, which uh, for us is the judgment seat of Christ and then the return of Christ at the end of the uh, tribulation to establish His kingdom, and we rule and reign with Him, when we get there, we're going to see how. Everything that we went through in life worked together, was orchestrated by God to produce spiritual maturity in our life. And the issue for us is are we going to stay the course, are we going to respond to the challenge, or are we going to give up? So all things work together for good to those who love God, and I pointed out that that refers to every believer, but especially those who are pursuing spiritual growth because those who love God demonstrate it by obedience to him. Those who love God, and th- they are called according to his purpose, and that purpose is to, uh, also expressed as being conformed to the image of his son. And then we get the chain those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That is, he set a destiny out there for them. One thing we're we're going to begin with verse 31 as we... Verses 31 to 39, which is what we're getting into this evening. It's a conclusion to this section, but it's also a conclusion to everything that Paul has said up to this point in Romans. So the, the next nine verses that we're getting into are going to be a good opportunity to review some of the key ideas that we've seen in Romans so far. So he has a destiny for us. He's saying, okay, this is it's like a coach. We've got a team. The goal of the team is to be Super Bowl champions. And he's going to always treat every player on the team as if they are going to be the greatest player in their position to ever play the game. And, and are there going to be some that are going to fail? Yes. Are there going to be some that are going to be injured and they're not going to be able to, to make it very far? Sure. That's, that's what's going to happen in every body of believers. But you don't focus on building a great team by spending your time focusing on the ones who haven't decided if they're going to really play to their very best ability. You, you 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 develop a a wonderful team by focusing on the ones who really want to exploit all of their ability and all of their capabilities, and de- develop them. And hopefully that will encourage and inspire and motivate the ones who haven't quite decided how much uh, how much they're going to devote uh, to the end game. And the end game is, as I've said, using the analogy of football, the end game is to be a championship team. That championship team is analogous to believers who reach spiritual maturity and are manifesting the character of Christ in their life. That's the destiny that God has set before us. It's not a destiny related to salvation, which would be comparable to getting on the team. He's talking about those who are already on the team and how they are to focus on suffering and dealing with suffering in terms of getting to that championship Super Bowl game. And so that's the focus here. It's on sanctification. We're not dealing with uh, justification. The predestination here has to do with God's destiny for believers, not God's destiny for unbelievers. We're not talking about salvation. In verse 28, Our verse 30, rather, he develops a chain. We've talked about each one of these as we've gone through here. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. And so there's a chain that is set up here, and this is really one of the great verses on eternal security. In fact, John Wesley, who was uh, actually, he was a reformer within the Anglican Church in the uh, mid-1700s. Later, his followers were called Methodists, but initially they were called Wesleyans. And actually, he wasn't the founder of the movement. It was George Whitefield who was the founder of the movement. But they disagreed over the doctrines of Calvinism. Uh, Whitfield was much more of a Calvinist and a predestinarian than was uh, Wesley and his brother, John Wesley and his brother Charles. And Whitfield left to go to Georgia, or excuse me, left to go to, it was it was Wesley who went to Georgia. Uh, Whitfield left to go to America on his first uh, evangelistic uh, speaking tour in America. and And truly he and Jonathan Edwards, who was a Uh, pastor in uh, Northfield, Massachusetts, really lit a fire under people, and that became what was known as the First Great Awakening. But while Whitfield was out of England, uh, Wesley used his influence to turn their their followers against Calvinism, even though he had made a pact with Whitfield that they weren't going to make an issue out of Uh, The doctrines of Calvinism, and he would not. And Wesley promised he would not use it to split their reform movement. They were reforming the Anglican Anglican Church. So when Whitfield came back, he discovered that this movement that they had begun uh, was uh, had become anti-Calvinist. And to his uh, credit, and grace orientation. He did not make an issue of it and uh, relinquished any influential leadership within the group uh, to John Wesley. And uh, Wesley, when he uh, was translating this verse, um, uh, when it got to the end of verse 30, he said, those whom he justified, these he also glorified, and then he inserted if they persevere to the end. Because he didn't believe in eternal security. And that was the real issue today in a lot of the debates between calvinists and and those who are not calvinists a lot of in America, the issue is usually around the extent of the atonement, whether Christ died only for the elect or if he died for all mankind. Uh, that seems to be the big issue that usually is raised in in America among American evangelicals. I remember in the uh, fall, I believe it was in the fall maybe it was in the spring uh, of my second year at Dallas Seminary uh, um, Francis Schaefer had written a book called How Should We Then Live and they had produced this huge multimedia uh, uh, film and lecture series and there were some cities like Houston and a few others that just got the film series and then there were others like Dallas and Los Angeles and New York where uh... francis Schaefer uh... came and gave uh... along with the film series gave additional lectures and i remember going to uh, moody auditorium at smu with a lot of other seminary students including tommy ice and we sat down on the about the fourth row from the front the entire Schaefer clan was sitting down in front of us and uh... charlie Clough and a contingent from a uh, loving bible church was sitting behind us and we had a uh, we had a tremendous time but uh... At one of the question sessions, uh, Dallas at the time was just seething with debate over over these issues of Calvinism. Every time you sat down, you got into a hot discussion with somebody over election, predestination, extent of the atonement or something. A very well-known Greek professor by the name of uh, S. Lewis Johnson had at one time been uh, quite the... um, Student of bluesbury Chafer, but then when he went off to England to get his uh, doctorate, he came back uh, almost uh, he came back a five point calvinist and he had because he was a true Southern uh, South Carolinian gentleman uh, realized that even though it didn 't technically violate the doctrinal statement, he had the integrity to say that it violated the spirit of the doctrinal statement, and so he resigned his position. Now we have faculty members at Dallas who violate the doctrinal statement uh, verbatim. And in spirit, and try to figure out some way to use postmodern logic to uh, justify their disagreement, so they don't have to resign because they lack integrity. But Lewis Johnson was old school, so Dallas was just a hotbed of activity, and that was great for me as a as a as a new first year, second year student in seminary, and I didn't had not been. Uh, well-educated in a lot of these issues and the history and in the intricacies of the arguments. And so I, I just loved it. It was great, all this hot discussion. But anyway, at the conference, somebody stood up, and there were a lot of questions on target related to the lectures that, that Francis Schaeffer was giving. And this one student said, well, well Dr. Schaeffer, uh, do you believe in limited or unlimited atonement? And I... Um, I I just loved his answer he said he laughed and he said I was warned that if I came to Dallas I would be asked that question let me answer it this way God is sovereign enough to accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish the way he wants to accomplish accomplish it and that was it I thought that was a great way to just dodge the whole question and leave it up to God so anyhow uh, there's been a lot of debate over this this whole issue. And the key thing of, uh, here in the U.S., I was getting sidetracked there, I forgot the point I was going to make. Um, one of the key issues here in the U.S. is it's always debated over election and over unlimited atonement. But if you go outside the U.S., the issue is eternal security. You go to Russia, you go to Ukraine, you go to Belarus, and all of us who've been over there, The key issue is eternal security, and it doesn't matter what else you believe. It doesn't matter how much you emphasize free will and how much you you de-emphasize any kind of election or irresistible grace. It doesn't matter where you are. If you believe in eternal security, the the Russian Baptists brand you as a hyper-Calvinist because for them, that's the issue. It's eternal security. And and for many people, even in this country, there's a lot of concern over whether or not a person can be uh, eternally saved if they commit certain uh, certain sins. In fact, I heard a debate Hugh Hewitt, I believe it was Hugh Hewitt on talk show the other day, and they were talking about. Uh, something related to this and, and morality and how could God really save somebody. Some sins, extreme sins, they talked about adultery. I just wish I could. I, I, I'm in the car and I try to call into these shows and I never can get in. I always get a busy signal. And uh, they th- and he's talking about how, well, murder is just one of those sins that somebody can't be forgiven of. And he's Jewish and I want to call in and say, what about David. They always ignore David and his conspiracy to kill uh, the wife of Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite, and that he's just as guilty uh, of murder as uh, as anyone. But God forgave him of murder and adultery and all of these other sins, and yet they tend to uh, conveniently forget that. But what we see here is a great verse on eternal security because there is this unbroken chain of uh, terms here that apply to the same exact group of people and there's no way you can exegetically break this connection. It, it's like uh, one time I asked uh, Al Ross who was the head of the Hebrew Department when I was at Dallas Seminary and written a doctoral dissertation at Dallas on the Table of Nations and had gone on and gotten his second doctorate at uh, at, at Cambridge with an emphasis in rabbinic theology and, and he forget, by the time he was 40 he'd forgotten more about Hebrew than than most students ever learned and I asked him about gaps in the genealogies in Genesis 5 and Genesis 10 he said with the numbers there you can't, they're, they're, you can't break them it's impossible exegetically to break them there can't be any gaps in those genealogies so the problem we have is archaeology seems to put the age of the of those civilizations much older than those numbers would allow but you can't break the numbers. Well, you can't break this chain either. It it's may be uncomfortable for people who don't want to believe in eternal security, but you can't break it. You have a set group of people. If you start at the end, there's a set group of people that are glorified. The last sentence in verse 30 is uh, the last couple of phrases, whom he justified... These, no more, no less, these he also glorified. He doesn't lose any. Nobody slips through the cracks. Nobody gets dropped out of his hand. Uh, Jesus holds us in his hand. The Father holds us in his hand. He doesn't lose one. or, or Nobody slips in either. Those who are glorified are the same ones, no more, no less than those who are glorified. And if you just back it up, those who are justified are the ones who are called those whom he called, these he also justified. And this has to do not with the irresistible grace of uh, God the Holy Spirit uh, as defined by Calvinism, but by the fact that God in his foreknowledge, that is knowing who would respond to the gospel ahead of time, uh, gives them a uh, clear understanding of the gospel, but he gives others a clear understanding of the gospel. But this is an internal calling that is related to uh, related to the word of God, which is the external call, as we pointed out in John chapter uh, John chapter six. And so this is related to those who are foreknown. That's the key thing. There that starts with the foreknowledge of God, as we see in the chain. But he, but that these. Uh, those who he called, these he also justified, tells you that it's the same group of people. Same thing with predestination. Those who he predestined, these he also called. And uh, Same thing at the very beginning. Those who he foreknew, these he also called. Now going back by way of review, what did we say that foreknowledge was? Foreknowledge is not election. It's not a predetermination or it's not a synonym for foreordination. It is a term meaning to know something ahead of time that's how it's used in extra biblical literature literature outside the bible that's how it's used in a number of places in the bible and there are four places as i pointed out where there's a debate because they're related to salvation and you can't you can't just generate out of thin air a unique meaning for those four instances because God is the subject. That violates all the rules of lexicography. Foreknowledge is the foundation and cause for election, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter uh, 1, verse 2. So that's very clear that foreknowledge means that God in his omniscience takes into account. He doesn't elect or predestine or choose whatever you want to use whatever term you want to use on the basis of uh, or because somebody believed but God in his out of his own will and his own desire uh select or our, our predestines chooses a destiny for that group that will respond by faith because he has known whom they will be from eternity past and so he doesn't cause their salvation uh, or cause their faith as Calvinists have, but his foreknowledge takes that into account. Now, one of the things we'll discover when we get more into the doctrine of election, which will come in chapter 9, uh, when we get into the doctrine of election, that election for Israel in the Old Testament, election for church age believers is going to, we'll see, is corporate, not individual. God is not electing those for individual salvation. It has to do with God has uh, elected those who are in Christ. And he has predestined those who are in Christ to a a destiny. So this gives us a tight uh, chain grounded upon God's foreknowledge. And it's the same group, which means that no matter what you're going through, no matter how chaotic life may be, no matter what suffering, let's bring this back to our context, no matter how much suffering and adversity you may face, You're not going to lose your salvation. You're not going to miss out on being glorified. God is going to take those who are justified and that same group will be glorified. God will not lose any. That's the point here. Remember, this passage is really a passage of comfort to believers who are facing uh, suffering and adversity and hostility. And so then he is going to focus our attention on all that God has provided for us in the immediate context, it is a reminder that God is in control even in the midst of suffering. In the broader context of chapters 1 through 8, he is reminding us that God is the one who has not only condemned us under spiritual death, but he justifies us, and that justification is based upon his love and that love is not going to lose us. And so it, it's the, the next nine verses are, in fact, not only a conclusion to the spiritual life discussion of Romans 8, not, uh, 6, 7, and 8, but they're a conclusion to the first eight chapters of the book. And Paul does this in a uh, rhetorical uh, manner where he raises... Seven rhetorical questions, each one sort of advances uh, the the uh, understanding now, a rhetorical question is a question that is raised by a speaker or by a writer, and he doesn't expect an answer to it. In fact, what he when he raises the question, he assumes that the answer will be obvious, and then he goes on to base the next point upon that answer to the first question. And so Paul sort of stacks these on top of one another, but in between a couple of them he does give the answer because it's not quite as obvious as some others. And so as he does this, the idea is to, um, is to bring us to the point uh, of the conclusion in verses 38 and 39 that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now what's significant about that is that he has an in his audience as we've seen in in the church in Rome a number of Jewish background believers who have become believers in Christ and as a result of that they might ask the question well if we can't be separated from the love of God what happened to the, to Israel it seems like God's pretty much separated them from his love right now is there a future for God's Israel. And that's going to be the focus of the next three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11. So Romans uh, 1 through 8 have focused on justification and then sanctification, and then there's a shift that occurs in Romans 9 through 11 to show how God's righteousness is also consistent with his plan for Israel and consistent with uh, uh, everything that is taking place in Israel at that time in terms of their uh their divine discipline. So he asks the first question, what then shall we say to these things in uh the first part of 831? Uh, then he and that is he doesn't give an answer to that. He just states the question, what should we say to these things? And then he answers it with this second question. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer to that is self-evident. If God's for us, nobody can really be against us. And so if God is on our side, God plus one is a majority. And if God is on our side, then it really doesn't matter who is against us because they can't defeat God. So that's the second question he asks in the second half of verse 31. Then he asks the third question in verse 32. And in that question, he gives uh, an answer he says he who did not spare or the third question is he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That's the third question: How shall he not with him also freely give us all things, understanding that he gave us everything in Christ? Then he asks the fourth question. In verse uh, 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And this is when he gives the first answer. I misspoke a minute ago. This is when he gives the first answer. It is God who justifies. So how can anyone bring a charge against the elect or bring condemnation against a believer if God has already justified him? So that directly relates to the eternal security issue. If you are a believer then you are in Christ, and by virtue of that, you're elect. And if you are in Christ, then no charge can be brought against you. You're not going to lose your salvation. You have received the righteousness of Christ and declared just because of that. So there's no sin that you can commit that's too great for the grace of God. There's no sin that you and I can commit that wasn't foreknown by the omniscience of God in eternity past, and that wasn't paid for on the cross. People who think that, oh, I can do something that will cause God to uh, take away my salvation fail to understand that the Scripture teaches Christ paid for all sin. He, in, in God's omniscience, he didn't forget one. He didn't forget that you were special. Of all the billions of people on the planet, you were the one who committed a sin God didn't take into account on the cross. And so you're going to lose your salvation. Thinking you can lose your salvation, I'm being a little facetious, is really just an act of arrogance, thinking I'm the one who can do something that God forgot about. I'm the one who can commit a sin that's too great for the grace of God. And and there's if you understand what sin is, then it's amazing that any of us get saved because sin is anything that violates the character of God. And anything that violates the character of God, whether it's a little white lie or whether it is genocide, it doesn't matter. One act of violation of God's character is enough to uh, cause divine condemnation. It doesn't matter whether it's large or small. In fact, the original sin was nothing more than eating a piece of fruit. It's not very dangerous. It's not something that causes a, a, a lot of uh, problems for people. It's not horrible, but its consequences were egregious because it violated the character of God. So, verse uh, the fourth question: Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Uh, fifth question, uh, verse um, fifth question, verse thirty-four: Who is he who condemns? And then this, the condemnation is then contrasted with Christ's death on the cross and what he did in payment for it and his elevation to heaven. Uh, verse 35 brings us the sixth question, who shall separate us uh, from the love of Christ? And then this is further enhanced by the seventh question, shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. I think it's interesting that Paul doesn't list sins there. He lists horrible things that happen because when we go through tribulation and distress, we say, what happened to God's love? Why is God letting this happen to me? And one of the things that I struggle with in in in, Talk, having discussions with some of my Jewish friends, is this sticking point with the Holocaust. This last week was uh, Yom HaShoah, which is uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day, and I was in um, Half Price Books over the weekend. And as I was taking, I took some books in to get the pittance that they give you when you turn your books in, but it's better than nothing. Usually, you spend it on something else. And I found a small little copy of Elie Wiesel's book, Night, which was his first book. Elie Wiesel was, uh, uh, the, the, I think it was the youngest survivor of Auschwitz. And he wrote, um, this was his first book, his Reflections, but he was raised an Orthodox observant Jew on the path to being a rabbi. And he came out of Auschwitz a, a, an atheist, doubting the existence of God. As did many Jews coming out of the Holocaust, wondering how could God let this happen, questioning the goodness of God. This is the major issue in the Jew, in, in the minds of many Jews: is how could God uh, choose them and then let them go through something like that? And uh, it's interesting. This last week, in in relation to that, the Jerusalem Post. No, wasn't it, it was another uh, Jewish news thing that I got. Uh, Somebody suggested, and it was a Jewish writer I thought was interesting because if a Christian had said it, they, they always get blasted by the press when they say it. Uh, this Jewish writer suggested that that maybe it was because Jews would just wouldn't get up and leave Europe and go to Israel, that they were so comfortable being ensconced in the Gentile communities of the Western world, that they were in danger of losing their identity, and God had to do something extreme in order to wake them up to get them to go back to Israel. Now, there, like I said, there have been one or two Christian pastors who have made that statement, and they have, they have been castigated by our liberal press as being so uh, uh, lacking in compassion and uh, forgiveness. But this was uh, interesting, and I think that is an accurate question. But this is a question in many Jews' minds, is how can a loving God let horrible things happen? So this is a question that happens with, with people. It's when they go through extended suffering, we get so self-absorbed and so focused on the pain that we say, why isn't God helping me? and And so, I think that's why Paul addresses it this way, so we'll get into this, and we'll start with this first question. What then shall we say to these things? and what he is doing is and by just the way it starts, what shall we say to these things is a positive way of assuming that this is true, everything I've just said in romans eight twenty eight twenty nine and thirty so what did, what's the point? Why is this important? Uh, what should our response be? Uh, since these things are true, so he he brings that to uh to the forefront and then he after getting our attention with that, what shall we say to these things okay what should your response be and this is a question that we should each ask ourselves is in light of our belief that romans eight seventeen to thirty is true what difference does that make in how we handle and face challenges, adversities, and difficulties uh, in life? And then he asks the second question, and the second question, if God is for us, who can be against us? And uh, this points us to the omnipotence of God. And it is a, uh, a, a way of stating what is called an a fortiori argument, which is a Latin term for from the stronger, and he's going to state it here, and in one way, and then he re- uses another uh, form of the a fortiori argument in verse thirty-two. And the a fortiori argument is an argument that if something is true, and the thing that is true is something that is larger or greater, then if that's true, then something within that scope that's lesser would also be true. For example, I could say it rained all over Houston last night. And I was in San Antonio last night, so it was dry there, but I looked at the radar uh, loops this morning and saw that a lot of rain came through Houston, so it's likely to say it rained all over Houston last night. rained over all of Houston. That's a universal statement. Then you might say, well, did it rain in the heights? Well, if it rained all over Houston, that's the greater then it would rain in the Heights. That's the lesser. Or you could say, well, if it rained all over Houston last night, did it rain in Spring Branch? Yes. If it rained all over Houston, that's the greater, then it would be true by force of logic that it rained in Spring Branch. If it rained all over Houston last night, well, did it rain in Tanglewood? Yes, it rained in Tanglewood. It rained all over Houston. That's the greater. So the lesser is also true. So if God is for us and God is the most powerful force in the universe, God and God alone is omnipotent, then if God is on our side, then nothing can be against us because there's nothing in the universe that can stand up to the omnipotence of God. And so this is an argument from uh, the stronger uh, to the lesser if God is for us he is on our side so if we are facing suffering no matter how great it may seem if we're facing suffering God is for us and whatever the source of the suffering if it's just a general corruption of the universe or some sort of a satanic inspired attack God is still greater than that because he's greater than anything uh, that exists inside the universe This a fortiori argument is then taken in a little more detail when we get into verse 32. Verse 32 states, He, meaning God, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Now, this is an extremely significant verse and one that's very much Uh, Worthy of your attention to memorize uh, for difficult times. He starts off with the clear statement that God did not spare His own Son. And with His Son, He gave us everything. And if God, and the argument here is if God gave us everything with His Son, then whatever else we might need to handle the details of life, God has given us those lesser things as well. It's a movement from the greater uh, to the lesser. But I want to look at this, some of the terms here a little bit, because it helps us review some of the doctrines we've studied in in Romans. In the first first statement, he says, he who did not spare his own son, and this is the verb that's there, uh, phidemi, and it simply means to to spare something or to withhold something of value from someone. And it's a statement that God did not withhold anything when he gave his son. Uh, John 3.16, God loved the world in this way or in such a manner that he gave his unique son, his one-of-a-kind son, the only begotten son, that idea is one-of-a-kind son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God gave the most. He gave the greatest degree in giving his son. He did not hold back. Now there's an interesting connection here because this is a word that's not used very much. I think it's only a couple of times in the New Testament. But it's used in the Septuagint in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 22 verse 12. Genesis chapter 22 verse Uh, verse 12 and in genesis chapter 22 verse 12 uh, we have uh, the story of isaac the story of isaac this is called in jewish theology they focus on isaac because in jewish rabbinical understanding of genesis 22 and i encourage you let's just turn back to genesis uh, 22 and review this tonight before we wrap up Uh, in genesis chapter 22 they understand that that um, that Isaac wasn't a small boy, and that's often what we see depicted in some Christian books and I think that unfortunately Christian writers who are writing books for children in order to to get them to somehow relate to the Bible story relate to Isaac or relate to uh, David and and uh, Jonathan later on and Samuel is they want to portray them as as little boys, as eight, nine, ten-year-olds. But in both cases, uh, both in the case of David and Jonathan and in the case of Isaac, these were young men, at least late adolescence, if not young men in their twenties, especially Isaac. I think that Isaac was probably, uh, had reached reached physical maturity. He was probably 18, 19, 20, maybe as old as uh, 20 or 25 years of age when uh, this time came, because some time has gone by uh, since his birth. And we have this word used uh, uh, that we had in in verse uh, 32, phidomai is used here for withheld in verse 12 in the Septuagint. God is speaking to Isaac after this whole event's taken place. And God finally intervenes and prevents uh, Abraham. As we see in the picture, this is an angel staying the hand of uh, Abraham from uh, sacrificing Isaac. Uh, He said, uh, God says, "'Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld, you have not spared uh, your son.'" Now, to understand this, we have to realize what a prize Isaac was to Abraham. Abraham loved Isaac more than anything because Abraham had not been able to have children. Abraham and Sarah could not have any children. God had promised and promised and promised again that Abraham would have a son from his own loins, and then eventually God clarified and said, from you and Sarah, not not the not Ishmael from uh, Hagar. And so Abraham loved uh, loved Isaac. And as the years went by, and he saw Isaac grow up, and during this time, God's testing Abraham again and again. Abraham grows to maturity, understanding that Isaac is the child of promise. And now God is going to give the ultimate test for Abraham. And it's not a test to see if Abraham's willing to kill Isaac. That's how people people present it so much is was abraham willing to to commit murder for god i mean that's a human viewpoint distortion but we have to look at this through the lens of scripture now the old testament doesn't give us some of this information but we do get it later on in the new testament in hebrews in hebrews eleven 17, we're told that uh, by faith abraham when he was tested offered up isaac and he who had received the promises, notice the New Testament writer emphasizes this promise. He who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son. Same term that's used of Jesus, emphasizing his one and only, his unique son. So is, is Abraham going to, uh, is the issue, is Abraham going to kill Isaac or is the issue, is Abraham going to trust God? That's the issue. And the Writer of Hebrews emphasizes that that the issue with Isaac is this is the one in whom uh, Abraham's seed would would go. God had promised him descendants that would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea, but Abraham concluded that God was able to raise up Isaac. See the uh, Abraham's not thinking, oh, I'm going to murder my son. Abraham has finally understood. Over the course of his life that God made a promise and God is going to secure that promise. He is not going to go back on his word. He was able to uh, reinvigorate Abraham and Sarah's uh, sexual and reproductive capability so that t- 10 or 20 years beyond their ability to have children, uh, this was regenerated. Uh, they uh, Sarah became pregnant and gave birth to Isaac. This was a miracle. And if God can do that, Abraham has finally learned that even if Isaac dies, if the seed line has not progressed, God will fulfill his promise and he will bring Isaac back from the dead. So he understands the issue isn't will he murder Isaac or not. The issue is whether he will trust God to raise Isaac from the dead or not. That's the perspective. And so uh, Abraham... Uh, fulfills the, the test. Now, if we look at the first verse, we see the clue here came to pass after these things, after all these various tests in the past, that God tested Abraham. It's very clear to us this is a test. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he answered, here I am. And God said, now take your son, your only son. That's emphasized in the test. It it echoes the only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that comes later. So this is a foreshadowing. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Notice God doesn't even take into consideration Ishmael because Ishmael was sort of an accident by way of Hagar, but that's not his son, that is his heir, it is Isaac. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Now the land of Moriah is believed by the Jews, the hills of Moriah, the temple mount, which later became the threshing floor of Aruna the, the, the uh, Hittite, and this was where Solomon built the first temple. That is Moriah, according to Jewish history and Jewish recollection. And it was there on the foundation stone in, in Jewish tradition, which is what's the stone or the rock that the dome of the rock is built on. That rock that's in there that none of us can go see right now and haven't been able to for about 15 years they won't let Christians in but that rock that's there is thought by uh, Jewish tradition to be the place where Abraham was going to sacrifice or, or was going to sacrifice Isaac and that is on Moriah and so to offer him there is a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, burnt offering is a very specific term. This is described in Leviticus chapter 1. You have to uh, kill the sacrifice, slaughter the sacrifice, then dismember the sacrifice, put the carcass on the altar, and then build up the firewood around the uh, uh, around the carcass and light the fire until Everything is completely consumed by the fire, and the smoke and the offering all ascends to heaven, which is why it's called it, the, the Hebrew word for a burnt offering is an olah from the verb Allah, meaning to go up. And so um, Abraham has said, now don't just sacrifice him, give him as a burnt offering. This is a pretty extreme thing for a parent to do to a son. So Abraham, we're told, right, rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering, arose, and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, now they're, uh, they're, they're coming from the south, and on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Now there's another interesting thing. And that is that they've discovered over the years, as this has been known for years, but they've discovered a place uh, not too many years ago along what is known as the Way of the Patriarchs. There is a trail that runs from the north through the south, through by Jerusalem, and to the south in Israel, from the hill country in the north through Shechem and down past Jerusalem and down past Bethlehem and down towards Hebron. Remember, Hebron is where uh, Abraham was living. And this is approximately a day's journey from the temple mount and it and there's one location I went to last year that at this location you can it's the first time that you can see the temple Mount if you're walking from the south and there is a mikvah there, which is a ceremonial washing place that uh, survived, that they've discovered from the second Temple period because as uh, pilgrims would make their way to Jerusalem. It was at this place where they first could see the Temple Mount that they would get up in the morning and they would have a ceremonial washing to make sure they were cleansed before they went to the temple. They would arrive at the Temple Mount by that afternoon. And it is believed that that's a location location, very close by the location where Abraham arrived and saw the uh, hill of Moriah for the first time. is right near there. So Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abram took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. So Isaac had to be a good size, strong young man to carry all the wood, because this is, it would take, it takes a lot of wood to burn up a human carcass. So he has to carry the wood, and and he puts it on Isaac, his son, and he took the uh, the fire in his, in his hand, uh, carrying it in a, in a brass or bronze censer and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to, his, to Abraham, his father, and said, "'My father, here I am.'" And Abraham said, "'Here I am, my son.'" See, that kind of mirrors the first line where God called Abraham, said, "'Abraham.'" And Abraham said, "'Here I am.'" Now Isaac says, "'My father.'" And Abraham says, "'Here I am, my son.'" says, look, there's fire, we have wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Now, here's the clue to Abraham's mental attitude. Abraham, his father, said... um, In verse uh, 8, Abraham said, "'My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering.'" Now, that's what clues us in doctrinally to what this is depicting. This is depicting a substitutionary sacrifice, and that's the whole point of this this whole little episode, uh, eventually, is that God is the one who supplies the substitutionary sacrifice. And so Abraham, before he ever gets there, says God's going to provide a lamb. He knows, because of who God is in his character, that he's... He's not going to actually have to kill Isaac, and if he does, God's going to bring him back to life, and God will provide, in either case, God will provide the perfect sacrifice. So they go on together, and in verse 9 we read, Then they came to the place where God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there, placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar. Now, if Isaac's over the age of 15, Isaac recognizes that that he's doing this voluntarily. This is, in in rabbinical theology, they refer to this as the Akita, the binding of Isaac, because they emphasize the fact that Isaac had to do this willingly. Isaac is is showing just as much faith as Abraham is. He has figured this out. He's not dumb. And he has to willingly, he could have uh, easily fought his father and run off but he has to submit to his father and to uh, being tied and bound to be put upon the altar. And then verse 10, Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to his son, and at this point the angel of the Lord called to him from at heaven. This is, and this is in this Carveggio and most others. They depict this with an angel, uh, not realizing that the angel of the Lord is God himself. Uh, God himself stayed his hand and says, don't lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God since you you have not withheld your son. Abraham is giving everything. That's the point. That's the emphasis of this verb in Romans 8.32. That nothing is withheld by God. He has given everything already for our salvation. And so, if He has not withheld anything to the extent of giving His Son to die on the cross for us all, that He's delivered Him up for us all. And here we have another important phrase. The phrase for us all is the uh, uh, <clears throat> Greek phrase pair, the preposition huper plus the genitive, emphasizing. Uh, substitution, and that's the emphasis in this sacrifice in Je- Genesis 22, is substitutionary death. God provides a substitute for Isaac, just as God provided a substitute for all of us. And there are two uh, prepositions in in Greek that emphasize substitution. The first is the preposition anti, and we see it in some other contexts here, Matthew 2:22. Uh, When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, this is talking about Joseph after he and Mary and Jesus fled to uh, Egypt. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. See, one thing in place of another. That's the idea of Anti. Matthew 17, uh, 27. um, Jesus is talking about the uh, tax to Caesar Lest we give them a fence, go to the sea, throw on a hook, take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you'll find a stator. Uh, this is a small coin to pay the tax. Take that and give it to them for you and me. It's in place of. That's the idea of the preposition. Uh, uh, Luke eleven eleven. 11. Now, he's, Jesus says, Now, suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give, give him a snake, Instead of a fish, will he? The same idea on It's replacement or substitution. So this is the idea there. You can't avoid it. The atonement isn't an example. The atonement isn't uh, some sort of general... Uh, Uh, satisfaction of God's justice to the universe or something like that which is called the governmental theory it's a substitutionary atonement this is what we see in passages like Matthew 20, 28 just as the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom instead of or in place of the many it is substitutionary Luke 22, uh, 19 Jesus said in the in the Last Supper, "This is my body, which is given instead of you, or as a substitute for you." John uh, John thirteen thirty seven. These are examples of huper that's used here. John uh, uh, Matthew twenty twenty eight is huper. Luke twenty two nineteen is huper. Uh, John thirteen thirty seven, or Peter uses it in uh, it's not not a salvation passage. Peter says, "Lord, I'll lay down my life for you." He understands it's substitution. So this is the idea, Uh, Romans 5, 6, and 7, Christ died for substitution, hupere, for the ungodly. And so in Romans chapter 9, when we look at what Jesus is saying, I mean, what Paul is saying there in reference to God's giving Jesus, uh, that God did not spare his own son, how shall God who did not spare his own son uh, freely give us, let me get back to the passage here, Uh, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall, and, and that's the substitutionary idea, how shall he not with him along with Jesus we are given all things? And so this is a reminder that We already have in Jesus everything necessary to face and handle any adversity, any suffering that may come along. Next time we'll come back and look at the uh, remainder of these questions as they build to the ultimate question of who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? and we'll come back and probably wrap up this chapter next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of your love, your great love for us that sent your Son, uh, the, gr- the greatest sacrifice that could ever be made, uh, sent your Son to leave heaven to take on uh, human flesh, to enter into human history to die on the cross as our substitute, in our place, just as that uh, ram caught in the thicket on Mount Moriah stood in place of Isaac. So Jesus stood in our place, a perfect picture of his substitutionary death for us. Father, we pray that we might come to understand that this means that we have everything we need to handle whatever adversity, suffering, difficulty, or challenges come our way that we need to keep our focus on the end game, being prepared to reign and to rule with Jesus Christ, to be joint heirs with him in the kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.